Welcome to Asbury Pod with Amy Quinn and Joe Walsh. If you have not ridden a mountain bike on a glacier range in Alaska on your way to work, well, neither have we. But today we are talking to Sam Herod, native of Fairbanks, Alaska, and PhD researcher in glaciology who has. We talked to Sam about funding, conducting, and publishing glacier research as a citizen scientist, all while holding down a barista job at the world-famous Asbury Roastery on the boardwalk. But as you will hear, Sam's many other interests proved too fascinating for us to stay on topic, so we grilled him about training for 100-kilometer ultramarathons, how does one play piano, drums, and sing at the same time, and are there outdoor cats near the Arctic Circle? So many things that we might need to bring him back for a part two. Welcome, Sam. The matters addressed in this podcast represent my own personal views and opinions concerning issues affecting the citizens of Asbury Park in my capacity as the deputy mayor of the city of Asbury Park. They do not necessarily represent the official position of the city or the official position of the Asbury Park City Council as a whole. I am developing and implementing this podcast in an effort to keep citizens informed. However, this is not an official City of Asbury Park podcast and does not, and I repeat, does not represent the official position of the city or the governing body. Their interviews always hit the mark, so subscribe to Asbury Park. I mean, pod. Be informed, don't be in the dark. Everybody listen to Asbury Park. I mean, pod. Everything you need to know. Brought to you by Amy and Joe. If you're local, they're the pod for you. But Bennies are welcome and Shoebies too. Route 35 to Convention Hall. It's Barry Pod covers it all. As Barry Pod, I love you. I love you. Welcome back to Asbury Pod. I had to think a second because it's been a, it's been a couple weeks, weeks since we've had. Yeah, and I have to take responsibility for that. Uh, so my day job is a legal services job, and the courts have sort of kind of maybe opened up where they are sort of kind of maybe evicting people and um, all of these people who were not evictable during the pandemic are now uh, potentially in the running to be evicted. So my day job went from being um, mildly stressful to horrifically stressful in the last, probably August 1 was when the moratorium, when the moratorium started to kind mm-hmm. of wind down anyway. Um, and, you know, Sam, I know you talked about, we talked a little bit about um, uh, potentially meeting in person and um, well, yeah, say, I'm going to bunt that to Joe. Well, let's talk about who our guests are today. Uh, we're meeting, we're talking to Sam Herod, um, who is a, is a, um, is a citizen scientist, right? You're a glaciologist, if a um, uh, PhD researcher. And the reason uh, you know, the reason I even know you exist is that you, you're a barista at, uh, at Asbury Roastery, our favorite uh, coffee place. And Allie had put you on the media stream. She's like, oh, here's Sam. He studies glaciers. And I was like, what? You know, <laughs> let's talk to this guy. Um, and so, yeah, we were just saying, um, you know, we, ideally we'd like to be, for those of you who are listening, we're still doing this via Zoom because we, we don't have a place yet um, to record in person. We had been recording prior to the pandemic at the Asbury uh, what was words bookstore, but that's, that's a different business now. And they don't have the space to let us record in their back room. 
Um, I have to tell you, Parler has offered repeatedly, and the problem with Parler, which is Jen is listening, is that she won't take money, and and I'm not going to let us use her space without making some sort of donation. So, Jen, if you're listening, if you will allow us to make a donation, maybe to wooden walls, we would then go in person at Parler. I think that's a good idea. I mean, just like drop twenties out of our pocket and leave, like. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, so join us. They, uh, like, There'll be a trail of ones and five. Right. She'll have to pick up when she opens the door. So, um, and Delta has complicated that too. So for now we're Zooming. And, uh, but anyway, we'd like to welcome Sam to the, the podcast. And like I said, this was my idea because I saw him on the, on the um, Asbury Roastery's feed. And I went and f- sought him out. Like I was like, well, this, where does this guy work? And they said, oh, he works at the, the, the on the boardwalk. And uh, so I had to confirm. Uh, so let me talk to this guy. So. Um, and because I've just, you know, because I started following your social media feed afterwards and it's like, this is a pretty interesting guy. So how does a guy who studies, you're from Alaska, right? Is that your home? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Guy from Alaska gets his PhD in England, studies glaciers in Alaska, but settles in in the Asbury Bradley (laughs) beach area and is a barista at Asbury Roastery, but finds the time to do serious scientific research and publish papers. Um, and I'll let people know where we can find that too. You know, Sam, I have your paper here. Um, about glacial melt, but uh, anyway, uh, anyway, the, so this is a really perfect Asbury Park story. <laughs> and usually, our stories like most of our stories, like Amy Craig is like, How did you get here? and we ask the same question every like, Can't you? So, Sam, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Where are you from? You know, what do you do? And you know, and then we'll get around to like how you end up in Asbury Park. So, what is a glaciologist? Let's start there. Uh, well, it's like an, an area of geophysics where you sort of focus on uh, there's the cryosphere yeah which is the uh, part of the planet that's experiencing uh, freeze and th- uh, freeze and thaw processes and then there's specifically glaciers which are just these uh, accumulations of ice that uh, build up in the mountains and flow like like rivers literally like rivers of ice uh, down to lower elevations and so what they pose is a bunch of interesting sort of geophysical problems and uh, in one way it's quite an eloquent thing to study because uh, it's just one pure element it's just water frozen uh, yeah water that has uh, interesting rheological properties it flows in a certain way and but it's since it's it's only one like in geology it's complicated by lots of different minerals and rock types but in glaciology it's kind of it's it's like a it's it's a constrained problem because it's just ice, uh, and so it's in that sense it's quite um, interesting from a scientist perspective. It's a fun problem to work on, but then on top of that, it's uh, it's actually a very relevant problem to society and the world because uh, these, this uh, accumulation of water has been uh, stored in the mountains in this solid state ice for many many thousands of years, and now it's melting. And what it does is it it's, it, it uh, it is, and the, the, the nerdy term is a eustatic sea level rise, but basically mm-hmm. this water that has been trapped in the mountains for so long, it melts, changes phases, turns into water, moves down, uh, down, down slope, down into to the rivers, and eventually into the ocean. And, and, it's, and it's bringing new fresh water into the ocean. That is, it's not been in the ocean for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is, this is sort of the sea level rise term from glaciers that's, it's it's uh, extremely important and relevant to society. Well, I was thinking about glaciers. Um, 
our entire landscape that we, especially here in New Jersey, you can see it was carved out by glaciers, right, during the Ice Age. And the receding glaciers left these beautiful ravines, left rocks piled up in certain parts of the state. You know, um, so one could say the entire, like, you know, post-Ice Age human civilization lives in the remnants of what glaciers had done, right? You know, our geography was formed by it. And now, even now, as you pointed out, it's relevant because it's going to form the future geography as it melts away uh, and changes sea level. But um, growing, so we had talked earlier, what, you're from Alaska uh, originally. What part of Alaska, if I may ask? Uh, in Fairbanks, it's sort okay. of. Is, this, right. is that the capital or is it Juneau? No, Juneau's the capital. Fairbanks yeah. is like the second biggest city, kind of right in the middle. It's like the only major city that's not next to something beautiful. <laughs> the Fairbanks uh, Tourism Board will be contacting us after uh, uh, yeah. this. Uh, um, so, is you know, uh, growing up in Alaska, how do you get in, uh, interested in? In um, I guess, forgive me for not having been there. So, if you're growing up in Alaska, are glaciers ubiquitous and everywhere, and in a way that you don't notice, or is it you have to actually have to seek them out a little bit farther from where you live? to go see them in other words were they there like all the time in the background or did you some one day head up into a national park and be like oh i've never seen this this is pretty interesting they're ubiquitous in the sense that as you drive the highways you'll see them but not in the sense that you might stand on one or interact mm -hmm. with one and so you do have to kind of i mean they're there so it's it's a little bit easier than elsewhere in the U u.s uh, but you, you, yeah, you definitely have to seek it out in a way. You have to um, get head up to the mountains. I mean, these, these what once were these massive ice sheets that you say, like the Laurentide ice sheet, or mm -hmm. um, yeah, like the, uh, the the glaciers have now receded back into just mountainous areas. So uh, it's 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 kind of like one of the last areas where uh, where uh, humanity can't really. Um, build infrastructure in the, in the mountains. I mean, you can have little huts here and there. The, the Swiss are quite talented at that, but like you can't really take over this environment. So uh, uh, they're, because it's wild. Because uh, they're moving, right? They're even when, uh, so if you build something, the, it, it's not, it can't remain, you can't build on a glacier, right? Because it's, exactly. it's, it's, it's a very slow moving river, right? It's still moving, yeah. moving, moving. There's, there's this interesting phenomenon. I wrote a few, uh, or I wrote one paper on this earlier in, in, I guess my little science career, but uh, surging glaciers are sort of uh, this kind of bizarre event where you could have two glaciers that are fundamentally identical, but one has this surge type behavior and it'll gallop or speed or, or, pull, or um, advance at a super high rate. And there's uh, some highways in Alaska that have uh, historically been threatened by advancing glaciers. Like they built this highway not anticipating a glacier could uh, in, interfere with it and then all of mm -hmm. a sudden you have this bizarre uh um, event take place and yeah yeah so so uh so there's in order in order to get onto a glacier you're there's certainly you need to go to a national park or into some wilderness into the mountains and and uh, uh it's usually i mean hunters will be there and uh people are recreationally hiking around glaciers and i got into it uh by way of uh climbing I just, um, I was, uh, uh, the first part of my life, I really was not an adventurous person. I lived in Alaska, but I just stayed in town. I was a musician, played music, and, and didn't really adventure out. But I, at some point, I realized, oh, you're right. saying you raised something. I want to bring a thing up. So the other thing, you're a one-man band, right? 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I want to bring that up too. Like I saw a post of you playing piano and drums at the same time. Uh, and you see a piano in the background there. So I do want to put that aside and come back to that later. So, yeah, you're, 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 you're prior to being a glaciologist, you're quite a talented musician as well, right? Thank you. <laughs> and also, Sam, I have to ask because I have also never been to Alaska, and I feel like, of course, my perception of Alaska is related to Sarah Palin, right? Because that's the most famous person I know from Alaska. So, so one, what is it like growing up in Alaska? And two, what would you say is the biggest misconception of Alaska? Oh, misconception. Um, well, I mean, the thing about growing up in Alaska is that your parents put you in a place that uh, where you, I mean, okay, if you grow up in a household with Scientology, all you're going to know is Scientology. And that at some point, maybe you're going to, grow up and, and explore a little bit of the rest of the world and kind of think, oh my goodness, I've grown up in this whole framework uh, that's sort of unique to the, how the rest of the world is living. In a way, it's something like that where uh, and if you grew up in Alaska, you don't really acknowledge, you don't know what, how the rest of the world is, is, how the rest of the children in the world are growing up. And so if you're playing in, in 20 below and you're out at recess in elementary school, I mean, that's just normal for us. And then, then you kind of come to, come to awareness later in life, like, wait a minute, like not everyone else in the world is suffering like we did <laughs> out in, in this uh, in frigid cold. Um, it's like, it's a, it's a bit of a, uh, I mean, so in, in Fairbanks particularly, the, it's kind of grandfathered into how people are able to live. I don't know if you could even legally do it in the composite, you couldn't legally do it in most places in the U.S., but these like dry cabins are sort of grandfathered into the building code and so it's totally legal to uh rent these dry cabins it's just effectively an insulated box and it's cool because as a undergrad student you can um, afford to live on your own you don't have to have roommates you can have this, one of these dumpy cabins all to yourself but uh and what do these dumpy cabins look like sam when you describe this like uh i mean some are logs some some have just no, are normally framed uh and they i mean uh, they're usually the, so if you know in Fairbanks the ground is frozen there's permafrost so if you build your house uh, straight on the ground your house heating your house will send heat into the ground it'll melt the permafrost and your house will collapse into the ground and so they're all on stilts and 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 they're usually like just built by random people so it's they, there's like levels of precariousness on how these houses on stilts are uh, but yeah it's just like usually like maybe like a 18 by 18 foot box and there's maybe a loft and there's maybe a wood stove and there's uh, no, no running water or amenities like that no running water yeah <laughs> so that wow well that kind of does fit in with our perception of alaska because alaska has alaska i don't know if it's true but like they do like to present like well you know we're the we're the we're the biggest and toughest in the country the rest of you people couldn't couldn't handle but then sometimes parts of alaska have like regular ordinary looking suburbs you know which is Totally you know, indistinguishable. Although Alaska, I know, I, I know people who go to Alaska. It's Alaska is the kind of place where you go to visit and sometimes people get captured, right? They never come back. They visit like once and then you get a postcard. It's like, I've moved to Juneau. Goodbye. Right. And then they, <laughs> you know, and then they have a new life there. So it seems like a really, for those of us on the, uh, this so far away, it seems like this mysterious exotic place. Um, but you know, with rather men also has some of the mundane as well. Right. 
I mean, it's like, it's just an accumulation of the eccentric. Like if you're the black sheep of your family and you just, um, yeah, then this is sort of where you might end up and find community. And it's, and that's really what you, what's, what's so special about this is that if in a place, a place where everyone's suffering collectively, usually for the temperature that you kind of, there's some camaraderie that's also involved there. And so it's a, it's a pretty warm community there. You know, it's, this is so fascinating to me because I get blue in the winter in New Jersey. <laughs> I get the sad lamps and stuff. Just, I like buy new clothes in the winter. So one day a month, I feel like slightly less depressed. You know, I'm like a hotter, the better kind of person. Um, I'm never complaining about summer weather. Um, so, so, so interesting. So I'm sure this is like not, I'm sure I should know this, but I don't. Is it like particularly dark there? Or do you, is it like the normal sunlight that we have here? Or do you, I feel like there's more dark, or let me say this, every horror movie that's taken place in Alaska has had darkness for long periods of time that I've seen. Yeah, I mean, so Fairbanks is just south of the Arctic Circle. So there actually, there's always a little bit of uh, daytime in the winter. There's always a little bit of nighttime in the summer, but effectively, uh, the winter, it's, I mean, if you work a job or go to school, you will never see the sun because, uh, it, it'll just kind of crest the horizon, dive back down and it's dark, dark all the time. And then, and then you get the inverse of the summer where the sun never sets, you get the midnight sun. So you kind of, you don't live, it's like almost, you're not living at this normal diurnal cycle like everyone else. You're, uh, you you sort of hibernate in the winter and then are very active in the summer and, and I think a lot of for a lot of transients people that come to Alaska I think it's they struggle a lot with the light um, but growing up in it I think I was just uh, accustomed to it so I, I never had any trouble falling asleep in bright daylight or um, I don't know I was never too depressed in the winter. You know and. Uh, I there's another aspect to Alaska. Now, when I, prior to a meeting today, I was doing some research and I came across a blog post because you're, you're, you're an outdoorsman, a runner and, and, and things like that. And there was a blog post um, that sort of mentioned um, you, but it made a point to discuss Russian groceries. <laughs> yeah. You know, people forget that like Alaska was Russia and it still has Russian influence and Russian speakers and Russian culture in parts of Alaska. And so there was one article I was reading about you where you had to go to, you, you, there, but just specifically mentioned a Russian grocery store in Alaska, which I, I you know, completely had forgotten about uh, Russia. I mean, bringing up Sarah Palin, she can see it from her house, but you, much closer than that, there are Russian grocery stores and speakers and culture. You can learn Russian language in Alaska schools, right? Is that? Well, good question. I, I mean, we, I, we never learned Pressure. I mean, we, yeah, no. Uh, well, that's what that, that, that blog posted. Uh, he must, you know, so I don't, I don't know firsthand. Um, there's, I mean, yeah, there's definitely uh, uh, some Russian, Russian culture left over from mostly in the coast and the, in the Southeast. Uh, they, the, I don't think the Russians traveled much inland. Um, it was mostly, I think, fur trade around the periphery. And, uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, you can certainly, yeah, the, the, the closest grocery store to the mountains where I would go climbing frequently was a, was a Russian grocery store. And so you, you'd kind of like 
roll the dice and try something that you don't, you cannot read the ingredients list on and hope that that um, can sustain you through a climbing trip or something. Like <laughs> so I, I'm worried that we spent this entire podcast asking you questions on Alaska because Joe and I will never go because we don't fly. We don't so fly. We will never go so. to Alaska, <laughs> um, but we're going to pepper you with questions about it. So I just, I need to redirect this a little bit and yeah. just tell us how you got down to the Jersey shore because it's an Asbury park. <laughs> Yeah. Podcast, yeah so, so we just need to, to get you at least down to the shore before 650. So says Stan, let me, you, so um, after college, you did a PhD in England uh, of all places uh, and uh, in near Newcastle and, uh, or in Newcastle. Right. And um, so that's the, the, you know, let's go from there. So, you know, after your PhD, you know, well, this is the question we always ask everyone, you know, Amy always likes to ask is like, how did you end up in Asbury park? You know, not that we don't want you here. We just, we, we just love to hear how you ended up here. Like, you know, uh, usually as Amy says, it's a, a, a breakup or bankruptcy. bankruptcy or breakup. <laughs> you know. So what was interesting to me, Sam, about what you were saying about the quirkiness of Alaska is there's a quirkiness to Asbury. You know, people who moved here in the 80s and 90s and particularly the early 2000s, nobody was moving here because it was, um, or very few people were moving here. And if you were moving here, you usually had a story. You were leaving something, running from something, declaring bankruptcy from something because it was still back then cheap um so so it's, it's so when you kind of describe alaska and the um I, I say this on this podcast all the time jen hampton and i we used to call it the island of misfit toys uh asbury park because people you know there seems it's like some similarities a little bit about what you're talking about with um with fairbanks and uh, asbury park well certainly in the winter asbury's got you know we're still we still have that kind of like uh odd community here year round you know <laughs> Well, so, yeah, so, I mean, it's a little convoluted, but uh, I, yeah, I, I did undergrad in Fairbanks. I skipped the master's and went straight to a PhD in England. And then I worked in Switzerland for a year. And my work visa had expired. I had a couple of research proposals uh, with the British, U.S., and Swiss governments all submitted. And I thought they were strong. And I really anticipated continuing my, my scientific career in Europe. Uh, but the position I was I was holding at the time ended and my work visa expired. And so I just needed to come back to the U.S. And so I didn't feel like going all the way back to Alaska just because I thought it would be a short trip. So I came to the East Coast. And, uh, and I have a sister that lives in the Bronx uh, in New York City. And so I thought I'd stay with her. For, I thought maybe about a month is about as long as I expected to be in, uh, in the U.S. And then... Uh, just about as soon as I got here, some those proposals got rejected. So then I was a little bit, uh, um, just it was just an unfortunate outcome. And then there, COVID, just kind of the advent of COVID in, in the end of 2019 uh, to 2020. And I had some friends that were, I, 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 was try, I was trying to find some work. It was really awkward to find work in Manhattan right in the heat of, COVID. It was, I mean, I, I needed it to live, but it was obviously not the time to get a job. Everything was closed. Uh, and I had some friends uh, that were in Neptune and they offered me to stay with them. And I came and then got a job in, in Avon uh, as a barista. I kind of lied my way into that job. I told them I had some experience, which I didn't, <laughs> but I learned quickly. <laughs> now, is, is, 
we know that Allie doesn't listen, so we're, we're good. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then, uh, uh, as soon as I had a little bit of an income, I started renting a place in Bradley Beach and, and started working in Asbury Park. And all, all the while, I published a paper in Nature and just recently a paper in a journal called Frontiers uh, and um, sort of testing, um, exploring the possibility of, of filing a for paperwork to start a nonprofit that sort of focuses on funding science uh, right here in New Jersey. So in 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 a in, in a sort of very yeah very convoluted way, I went from thinking I'd be on the East Coast for a month to now maybe being here for <laughs> long term. <laughs> Well, I think Asbury has the same effect that when I just mentioned that people go to Alaska and get trapped and never come back. The same thing happens in an Asbury Park. You know, people come to visit and we wash up here and we never, we never leave, right? I mean, I uh, bought a piano, so I'm a little bit committed. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah, that's, that feels permanent. So, so. And you so, don't know this, Sam, but we've tried to get Allie on the show, who we've known, we were at her wedding. Um, we've known yes. Allie for, Jesus, 15 years? 10, 10, how long has she had the shop? And we Since knew the day she opened shop. that shop. Yeah. 10. Yeah. And I knew her prior to the shop because I knew, um, I knew her a few years before the shop. So we've known Allie a really long time. And anyway, I say all that to say, we've tried to get her on the show and she says, no, every time we've tried to get her on the show. Um, I think she doesn't like, um, she's, you know, she's, she's kind of quiet behind the scenes kind of cat. So she's not, she's not super interested enjoying the show. I have to ask another question about Alaska in the sense that, so like, I love the heat. I process heat. Well, if it's, you know, we do this 5k every year in August and it really has zero effect on me in terms of like it being 90 degrees and running a 5k. Do you process, you know, are you good in the heat? Are you like, are you just, just dying when it's hot because your body was raised when it with because New Jersey is brutal with the humidity. I can't imagine. Uh, I certainly got, got heat exhaustion on some runs um, last summer. Um, I was a bit, uh, uh, so yeah. I mean, it doesn't doesn't do too. It's like I think it's easier to go from the cold to the heat usually than the heat to the cold. For me, I, I'm kind of comfortable in anything. I, I think I wear like just about the same clothes running almost year round. It's just like I can kind of my body can kind of just deal with whatever regulates me yeah oh that is so interesting to me and when you run in alaska are you running on ice and are you running in regular running shoes uh kind of depends uh mostly yeah just you might run in trail shoes on the roads just to get a little more traction on the ice um it's 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 uh there's there's like uh a lot of people switch over to skis and cross-country ski the running is pretty limited to roads once once it gets into deep winter, uh, and it can. I mean, when it gets deep cold, it can be um, just you know absolutely miserable. <laughs> <laughs> but we still do it. We still have races year round. The race calendar. You, you you can look at the Fairbanks race calendar. There's events year round. There's always somebody somebody that's um, out running. So, uh, so you're, you're, you're training for a marathon, right? I do have a marathon coming. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm I'm usually a trail guy. I'm, I'm like an ultra runner. I prefer like uh, uh, long distance, hundred kilometer races, up to hundred mile races, like trails, um, mountain trails. That kind of thing is is my cup of tea. 
but every mm-hmm. once in a while I'll run a, a, a road marathon just to kind of check in and see if I'm getting a little faster. Uh, it's, it's, it's such a unique mm-hmm. rate. I mean, it's, it's, to me, it's a bit short, but uh, it's unique in that um, you, you can compare your time from years prior, unlike trail races where weather, the trail itself are, you know, vary from tra- race to race. And what so, marathon are you doing, Sam? Uh, Brooklyn. So, Amy, the Asbury Park 5K is not really a challenge for Sam. So, I clearly didn't impress you with our. <laughs> oh, no. August 5K, 5K is a hard runs. I mean, it's not... <laughs> You're thinking to yourself, these idiots, run... I could run that in my sleep, you moron. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no. 5K is a hard race, too. I mean, it's just like a matter of if you've got the speed in your legs or if you can just like slug it out forever and run for 24 hours. I mean, that's kind of. It's probably like a cop-out thing, you know, it's probably for like people, if you're not that fast, then you just run longer and longer and longer and you land these like ultra distance races and, and they're kind of fun in their own right. But it's kind of just a matter of keeping your eyes open and keep so the, moving. The ultra marathoners keep adding 10 kilometers until they win. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everyone else has died. I have won. <laughs> yes, exactly. um, and you know, this is also like a stupid Alaska question, but like I find that shoveling and it, and we don't get major snow, but you know, when we get like a foot, that's like a huge pain in the ass for me to shovel as a person who doesn't shovel other than, you know, every other year when we have a storm. So you probably, so in, in Alaska, I assume everybody's got a snowblower and you all have that shit down i mean i never had a snowblower but yeah you shovel a lot especially you like you say there's suburbs so if you live in the suburbs you're going to shovel a lot you have a driveway uh for me i mean i even just so keeping your car alive is one of the hardest things because uh they don't run well at that cold i mean you'll you'll know a car from uh, from alaska because it has a plug coming out the front we have to plug our our just like an oil pan heater that you plug in uh, if you don't plug it in a couple hours before you want to drive your car, it probably won't start when it's deep cold. And I just, I'm a little bit too ADD to plan like that. And so I just let my car freeze solid and, uh, and I would bike everywhere in the winter and I didn't like shoveling. And so I would just let it accumulate and compact. And so, uh, yeah, I did, I did, a, when I was living alone in, in a cabin, I did minimal shoveling and mostly just biked everywhere and just, uh, didn't have to deal with it. If you can pick up your vehicle and, literally carry it over obstacles then it makes your life a lot easier amy i sent you a picture i'd found of sam riding his bicycle on a glacier which i think yeah no i saw that we're gonna use that for the fascinating so sam to go back to your research real quick so now you find yourself in 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 asbury park your research proposals are rejected but you've continued to publish like nature you you said you published in nature uh in nature geoscience correct Yeah. yeah yeah nature and um um, and I have your most recent one, you know, uh, article uh, from August. What can thermal imagery tell us about glacier melt be- uh, below rock debris? So you're continuing your research, and you and I had talked about this at the coffee shop. So there's a particular dilemma for being quote citizen scientists, right? You know what? You know we're not attached to universities, right? We're, who provide? Who may provide funding for research? You have to do all of this out of pocket for the time being, right? Which is a bit of a you know that's a huge obstacle. And so can you talk about like, you know, what is it that, you know, what are the tactics you do to sort of maintain your, your research, you know, um, or what, and you'd mentioned the founding of a nonprofit, what would the nonprofit address when that's founded? And, you know, and who would you, you know, there's a lot of questions here. Uh, and who would that nonprofit help? You know, so I, I realize it's actually like 10 things at once, but, um, 
So let's just start with like, what's the difficulty of, of trying to do research without the backing of a university temper, at least for now? I mean, for me, it's just always been like a deep personal passion. Like uh, when I got, I got an undergrad in geology and most of the class went on to oil and gas and they were making six figures straight out of undergrad. And I just couldn't bring myself to do that. I wanted to stay in research. I was really curious about these, uh, the mountains. And, uh, and honestly, like I, j I just learned as uh, I, cl I would climb with other scientists and we'd be out just skiing for miles and miles and miles to get to a climb. And you just start to see the world in questions. You start to wonder about everything. You start to try to piece together how things got where they are. And, and I just wanted to, I, that, that those questions sort of got hold of me. And I just knew that I needed to spend uh, at least a really good chunk of my life addressing these questions. I mean, that's what drove me to, to get a PhD. I was not a clever kid in school. I was a pretty bad student on paper, but I just was driven to do research. So when uh, finances got in the way, I just figured out how to deal with it. I mean, um, this journal that I recently published with, I mean, they have a, it's like, a, it was a $2,300 publishing fee uh, to get the you, I mean, you go through the whole peer review process. You do all the work. You do all, you, you, however you finance your science. For me, it was on my own. But yeah, you, you do all that work. And then you finally get it through the peer review process, which is pretty intensive. And then they're like, great, we'll publish it. But you have to pay us uh, $2,300. <laughs> and so it's like, uh, you know, I'm, not, I'm, I'm hustling for every dollar at the coffee shop. So it's, um, it's definitely a labor of love. It'll take me some months still to chew away at that publishing fee. Uh, but it's worth it to me, and uh, and I'll I'm already working on the next article, and and what and whatever comes up in the way, I think uh, it, it's just the pro having gone through the process, I, I've I've uh, I've realized that it's possible, and so the uh, but I can see how a, like a little bit of finances can go a long way, so that's where kind of the idea for a nonprofit came in my mind which is like there's such it's such a big effort to publish science right like the, the the amount of effort to take something that you know put it into the scientific record it's it's, it's a tremendous amount of work and, and from my experience in and uh, communicating with other scientists it's like we all especially field scientists who are running out and 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 they're all kind of like you get these ideas you go measure something you're there you go measure something else like like there's so much information that, that these people, these scientists have, like, like on any given scientist laptop, there's so much information that they'll never publish just because they don't have time to. And it's such, such an involved process. So uh, what I'm trying to do is encourage and help financially uh, fund people to take this information that they already have and give them some resources and some push and a little bit of a push to get, get this information into the scientific record. Um, and beyond the fees, like you mentioned, this is a peer-reviewed journal. I mean, a peer-reviewed article that you had published. That's not easy either to find two researchers to sort of double-check your math, right? They, you know, um, or or maybe I'm wrong. Like maybe that was the easy part. But so, in addition to the fee, you have to sort of get the attention of researchers. Say, can you or 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 does this journal have a, a board that works with you on that? Well, no, that's like another just part of the peer review process. Like, so when I submit the article, uh, an editor is assigned to it. The editor decides whether they think it's worthy to go out to review or not. And if, they, if it is, then it's the editor's job to solicit reviewers, find reviewers that can comprehend and adjudicate the work. And then they have a certain amount of time to uh, read it, review it, 
and it kind of becomes a back and forth between the editor, the author, and the reviewers. But then, like, but it's just it's another strange part of the process when you're, especially when you're not collecting a salary at a university because the reviewers get so it's a tremendous amount of work and it's, and it's you know it's it's an important element of the whole system to to review other people's work and so like I'll get a re request to review and I'll take several of them but it's a it's, it's a lot of work that you do unpaid and sort of uncelebrated but it's just necessary and so but it's like a pay forward sort of concept like I review other people's works so, so that when I submit my paper then someone reviews mine so, but it's another weird uh, sort of for free part of science. It's like there's, I think, talking to people and explaining this just to my uh, customers at the cafe and whatnot. It's they, people don't understand that that there's a lot of that publishing is expensive. They think like, oh my gosh, you don't get paid to publish, and, and no, you don't. You 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 pay to publish, and when you review work, you just do it sort of out of the goodness of your heart. <laughs> <laughs> and, um. And the peer review, uh, that means that's the most important part, right? That's the, the people making sure that your data at least should be um, comprehensive and, re and your results reproducible another, by another researcher. So we, in other words, and so you're adding to the epistemology of science. So this is new, new knowledge that can be relied on. So it's a really important part of the process. But, you know... Uh, so doing it outside the university, you know, I work in the university, not in, I work at Rutgers University, but not as a tenured faculty member, but I just see the, the hoops that the tenured faculty has to go through to get anything done. So I can't imagine how hard it is outside, you know, and then, and then you have, um, you know, people yelling about their lattes while you're trying to think about these other things, right? Well, it's, uh, <laughs> um, Joe, it's actually easier because I don't have to deal with, with sort of the, uh, all the expectations of a university. Um, that's kind of like, like it comes at a big cost for me. I mean, I probably have the skill set and the resume to get a job somewhere, but I, I almost don't want to now because when I work when I when I work on my own, I can chase every any question that pops into my head. I I no one's expecting anything from me. I don't have to deal with any uh, university bureaucracy. I don't have to join committees or teach. I can just focus on my research. Uh, and then furthermore, when you're writing these proposals like it's a tremendous amount of work i mean to write a, a big nsf proposal it's just as much or more effort as writing a publication but the problem is that it's only going to be reviewed by a handful of people at nsf and maybe a few reviewers and it'll, that's i mean it, it may precipitate more work and get more jobs more people and, and eventually produce papers i mean that's hopefully what will happen but uh to me it's like i could also just take all that effort and write more papers and not sort of skip that step of uh, this internal step of, of trying to convince uh, um, some government agency to fund my research. I can just fund it on my own. <laughs> so Amy, uh, we're getting up on our time. Did you have anything? Um, no, but they're back to Alaska. So, and then I, we just need to talk about your nonprofit a little bit and how people can help. And also, um, I see the piano behind you. Joe mentioned that you're a musician. So I want to touch on that. <laughs> Do you keep pets outdoors in Alaska or no? There's like no outdoor cats. <laughs> Maybe not cats, but there are certainly outdoor dogs. I mean, I mean uh, the animals adjust to the weather. There's a lot of dog mushers around, so a lot of 
you know, it's like these people that almost, they, it's pretty cool. It's dog mushing is a pretty interesting sport because even the pros, they just kind of look like, I don't even almost. know what it is. So you got to explain what this uh, is. Sled, yeah, dogs. sled dogs. Yeah. Okay. And so, and so you, in, it's, it's pretty ubiquitous in Alaska. A lot of people have huskies. A lot of people have strong, fast dogs. And yeah, there's, there's all, there's this whole segment of the population uh, that are doing these, yeah, the Iditarod or the Yukon Quest or these big major sled dog races. And it's, it's pretty cool. These dogs are, are, uh, they're fit and they run really well. I think they suffer a lot in the summer. Uh, they're the opposite of you, Amy. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I think they love it. I think they have a pretty good life up there. And do people freeze to death a lot there? Uh, uh, no, I don't know. I mean, like if, if you're, I think people, if they're drunk, and if they're they, drinking because you because there's a lot of drinking in alaska i feel like i've read studies about alaskan drinking it's kind of like there's two ways to live your life up there you either drink a lot or you're very uh sporty <laughs> and so if you're sporty you're kind of out you get you're still kind of engaged you're going out maybe doing cabin trips climbing or skiing and, and that kind of keeps you going in the, in the dark dark month and, and part of my ask this is you know like we have a drunk problem in asbury right and you know my one of the biggest complaints we get is downtown and the and the drunks, right? Either kicking windows or causing fights or acting disorderly or whatever it is. So it's so when you talk about Alaska, I'm like like those people who who you know just are you know drunk and sleeping it off on a bench on Main Street. Is that happening in Alaska when it's twenty? I think it happens, but only one time per person. Because <laughs> <laughs> anyway, a- Sam, can we talk about your? Uh, again, we have like three minutes left. So, can um, Joe mentioned that you're a musician? Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, I mean, I was just kind of born with like a gift, I guess. And so, uh, before I got into science, I played music just all the time and played gigs, and uh, I. I kind of, it was just, it's a cerebral exercise to play drums and piano at the same time. I can just sort of uh, think about it and sit down and do it. That's great. I, I have some cassette tapes from when I was 14 years old where I, 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 uh, I was a little bit embarrassed and I would wait till no one was home. We had a piano and I was borrowing a drum set from my middle school. And I, if no one was home, I'd sneak the drum set upstairs to the piano. I could, I just set it up and just could play them both at the same time. Like I literally, what I do now is not so much more uh, proficient than those <laughs> cassette tapes from when I was 14. So uh, it was just a big part of my life. And But the problem is if you play drums and piano, these are just giant instruments and and it's Your not so easy. love you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thankfully they haven't called the police on me yet. But so the ones I've talked to said they like it. Uh, but like you, you take for advantage when you grow up yeah, in, these, in these cabins in Alaska that that you have no neighbors and I could play the drum set at 3 a.m. not not annoy anyone uh but so once I was in England and Switzerland it was a different situation you're moving around you can't have these uh big instruments but now that I'm sort of parked here in on the Jersey Shore I took it as an opportunity to uh buy a piano and and uh probably start playing little house shows I don't I don't know if I, if I can uh wheel this thing around to gigs um, you guys can tell me if there's anywhere that has a, a piano uh, available at a stage, but yeah, I'll probably just start playing gigs right here in my living room. 
Okay. Strzok has a piano. They have a piano. But I mean, the idea of playing two instruments at once, I, I can't even brush my teeth with my left hand. I can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so la last thing, Sam. So you're starting a nonprofit and I know you have something come up. You have a launch coming up in November. Um, so what should we know about your nonprofit? How can people help out? Uh, well, there, there's, we're, we're still filing the paperwork. So there's, there's not like a, a way to get involved in, immediately. But if you follow me on social media or you check out my website, uh, that's where all the information will, will give be. Us those ad, give us those addresses. Uh, so I'm just at Sam Herod on Instagram and uh, samherod.org, uh, my website. If you go to samherod.org, there's links to his Instagram also, and it's Herod spelled H-E-R-R-I-E-D. E-I-D. Oh, E-I-D. Sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> would you say there's a movies or what movies or series would you say? You know, people have this depiction of New Jersey, right? And it's um, what's the kids that I watched like 20 years? Jersey Shore, right? Or um, Real Housewives of New Jersey. And, you know, I know people are like, that's not really New Jersey. You know what? It's a part of New Jersey. Yeah, it really is. I mean, people can act like it isn't, but big hair and hoop earrings and loud people is a part of New Jersey. It is what it is. So, so like, what would, like, if I wanted to watch a movie or a series, which one do you think gives the best description of Alaska? Oh, that's a good question. Or is there one? Maybe there isn't, there isn't even one. Like Northern think, Exposure was good. <laughs> I think that was in Canada. Um, I'm not sure. I don't watch a lot of TV, honestly. And I guess I lived it, so I don't necessarily need to devour the content about where I come from. But I think there's a, a National Geographic series called 40 Below or something like that. And I think they did a good job getting really uh, uh, non-phony Alaskans and, and followed them and kind of got a, a, the real story. So I, I, I never watched it, so I can't really say. But uh, I, I had friends that worked with and were on the show. And so I imagine it's quite good. And um, I think, you know, we're going to, I think that's the end. Amy, do you have any other questions? Listen, if we didn't have another guest, Sam, I got, I we got go on another for hours, like 50 this. more questions on Alaska. <laughs> we should have I Sam have a million questions. You are the most <laughs> fascinating person. So, wow. Sam, can we have you like when's your next uh, you're, you're you're running another paper maybe when your next one's published we'll bring, we'll have you back on like a Sam part 2 to tell and then also when you have your house gig so I will you there's know, we even, can promote that. Uh, the, it's coming out any day now there's going to be my first uh, I wrote a comedy article for an online running uh, I guess like a magazine so there's going to be some com comedy writing coming out too. <laughs> <laughs> that's sure it's called how to laugh at your 5k friends <laughs> yeah, right and okay and then this is last one is there a body of water warm enough in alaska that you can swim in uh i mean yeah <laughs> well i mean uh it depends on uh not in january but perhaps uh in the summer you can right. go swimming in lakes and in stuff September. in september yeah. yeah well i mean in in, in uh in Fairbanks, it's a little hillbilly. We just swim in gravel pits and get swimmers itch. Uh, that's kind of the warmest. But you can also swim in the lakes or the rivers. They're, uh, they're mostly glacial fed, so they're silty and fast and, and a bit cold. But uh, on a warm summer day, uh, we would definitely go uh, swim in the rivers. Hmm. Fascinating, Sam. Absolutely <laughs> fascinating to me. So uh, we'd like to thank our guest, Sam Herod. Um, 
for joining us today. We, you know, if we didn't have a time limit today, we would have kept going. Maybe we'll have to have Sam back. But really, you can follow Sam's research at samherod.org and his Instagram from there, where you will see not only his uh, some of his running pictures, but uh, you know some video of his one man band periodically. And uh, <laughs> and uh, you can catch Sam at Asbury Roastery on the boardwalk, mm-hmm. um, where you know. Uh, where I met him and will gladly, you know, Sam, Sam's a very easy person to talk to. And if you want to talk to him about this, his glacier research, uh, you can probably find him there certainly by a coffee. Uh, so we can, uh, so we can uh, get paid. Are you in the boardwalk shop, Sam, or the, um, the first step pavilion? Uh, I'm not, I'm on the boardwalk. Yeah. I'm okay. not, I'm not in convention hall. I'm, I'm, um, I'm closer to uh, the casino. The casino. Oh, well, no, I went there a couple, <clears throat> a couple times this summer. It was great. I love the little seating area out front. Mm-hmm. We're going to bring tables in and have indoor seating hopefully soon. And cool. uh, maybe we can start right. recording there after hours. Amy. Oh, yeah. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? We'll hit up Alley. Yeah. I feel guilty <laughs> for overdoing be- the show. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, um, that- no, no, I love that location. And you guys, I'm assuming, are having the same staff issues as everybody else, right? Hard to get staff. Yeah. I, I don't think there's a business in town not having that issue. Um, all right, I think so. We're good, Sam. We're going to let you go. Um, really appreciate you joining us today, and we'll I think look forward to talking to you again. I think at some point. Oh, I'd something. love to. Maybe we'll, uh, so and, much. And maybe we'll do it in person. In um, you know, uh, at, when things settle, when Delta eases up a little bit, we can get back into the into the same room. But um, yeah, so thanks, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Sam. My pleasure. Thank you both.